I am Caleb Rowe, and this is the Air of Grievances podcast. So, as you know, if you're a listener of the show, I am in the midst of a transitional period, not only in my physical world, but also in my spiritual world and in my metaphysical world. I am in the middle of settling in to my new home state of Minnesota. And a big part of that has to do with finding a place to live, finding temporary places to live while I find a place to live. And associated with that, I need to give a huge, huge, massive thank you to the Saluka family. They have welcomed me in. I anticipated just staying at their house for a couple of days And they have just so generously opened their house to me initially for a couple of weeks. And then recently, David Sluka, the father of the house, sat me down while I was kind of frantically looking for apartments and and trying to make that two-week deadline. And he could see through me and my motivations, and he could see that I was fearful of becoming a burden on them as they have many children of their own. And he addressed that directly. I did not vocalize this at all, but he just perceived this through his own wisdom and his own perception. And he just sat me down and very calmly, very lovingly, very gracefully told me not to worry about making any sort of deadline. And he said, you're not a burden at all. You're a blessing and you are more than welcome to stay as long as you need to. And this is a big decision, finding a new place to live. This is a really big life step. There's no need to rush it, especially on our account. And it gave me goosebumps, almost moved me to tears, to be honest. I'm an emotion- I'm a very emotional person, if you've not gathered that much. But I just was so, so grateful. And that was such a burden just lifted off my back, not being a burden to the Saluka family. And so I have to say such a huge, massive, beyond words thank you to them welcoming me, a total stranger, into their house, a house with children, and letting me live with them effectively, indefinitely. I've joked, you know, oh, I'll, I'll just stay here forever. But of course, I'm on the prowl. I am looking for an apartment very actively. And I have some good leads And so, you know, hopefully I'll be settled into an apartment of my own very soon, which will also facilitate more interviews. Me having a space where I can do some interviews, maybe even one with Jay Baker. Don't want to... Well, I guess I'd let the cat out of the bag. There goes the cat. Oh, shit. There goes the cat. It's running away. It's gone. It's gone. I'm allergic to cats anyway. That's that's why I put it in the bag, to be honest, to start with. I put it in the bag to kind of keep it contained and keep it away from myself. It's supposed to be a hypoallergenic bag to contain the cat, but now the cat's out of the bag and the cat has run away. I'm not chasing after that thing. I'll tell you that right now. One thing is a cat. Another thing, I'm allergic to it. I'm not touching that freaking thing. So, you know, cat's out of the bag. Jay Baker has agreed to do an interview with me. So that's something to look forward to. I don't want to give any sort of set timeline on that. Number one, I don't have any sort of exact timeline on when I will have my own space. God willing, fingers crossed, if I'm lucky, fill in the blank very, very soon. 
Of course, that also depends on Jay's schedule. But I do have another interview planned that is going to be my very first Skype interview with my good, good friend. I'd say one of my best friends from high school, Drew Manning, who is an apologeticist, if that's a word. He's in apologetics. He got a degree in apologetics from the Southern Baptist Seminary. So we're going to hear a little bit from the other side of the fence on Southern Baptism, and I think that that is a healthy thing in the interest of the ongoing conversation about my own relationship with that denomination, hearing from him and hearing his perspective, which is very different from mine, and especially hearing it from someone who I respect and I love and who is a brother, not just, you know, in the church sense, a brother in Christ, but a brother to me. We went on many spring breaks together, and I don't want to spoil anything. I don't want to give too much information away, but we have that to look forward to. I was hoping to have that interview up this week, but I think it's going to be pushed back uh, at least a week. Anyhow, so this week, maybe a bit of a shorter episode I'm not exactly sure, but what do I do when I don't have anyone to interview? I play clips from YouTube. So you have lots of that to look forward to today. I am going to be discussing today some of my kind of more fringe ideas on Christianity that makes sense to me and that I have come to entertain, not necessarily embrace, but to entertain and to wrestle with as I have stepped back into the faith of Christianity. So yeah, I kind of think of this as pragmatic Christianity, and I can't help these things. I can't help how I naturally react to certain things given to me by the church specifically. And a lot of this is based on my own readings and interpretations and understandings of the Bible, which are very limited. I did study Koine Greek to a very, very, very minute extent, but I'm far from affluent or fluent in Koine Greek. So this is just from my own understanding and readings of various English translations of the Bible. You were a new language I was learning to speak. It was rough around the edges, but good enough for me. It was good enough, good enough for me. I view this kind of as Christianity that not necessarily rejects, but that is skeptical of anything that is storybook-like that is character-centric, that is dependent upon a narrative rather than the expansive, eternal, all-encompassing universe that surrounds us and that we interact with daily. And the force, the God, the force of the universe of love that we interact with daily, despite creed, religion, race, sexual orientation, things like that. So one thing that I would like to discuss is the concept of the kingdom of heaven. And I personally, when stepping back into Christianity, developed 
I guess maybe honestly a better way to say it is the thoughts sort of formulated and developed in my head just as being logical to me. And then I later found out that renowned biblical scholar N.T. Wright shares some overlap in his perspective on the kingdom of heaven. And so does radical theology. Of course, I go on about that all the time, and I am borderline obsessed with radical theology and its proponents. And I've mentioned this before in the podcast, so I don't want to be too redundant, and I'm sure I will mention it again in interviews. I will not be offended if you do not listen to this episode. I will take no offense, because I know it is just me talking and playing YouTube clips, which isn't the greatest, which isn't great, which isn't good, which is bad. Home run. Home run. I want to discuss the kingdom of heaven in reaction to the concept that it is something that we're just supposed to be waiting around for. Sitting on our hands, doing nothing, waiting for it to fall out of the sky, waiting for the character of Jesus to descend from the clouds and bring about this new kingdom, this new heaven and new earth. I like how N.T. Wright puts it that Christ's resurrection was the historical point. And like I said, I do tend to shy away from a historical assertion regarding Christian doctrine. But I do like how N.T. Wright puts it that the resurrection marked historically the start of the kingdom of heaven. It ushered in this new heaven and new earth, this new way of being, this new metaphysical realm But even if the ideas that I entertain concerning the kingdom of heaven in this regard are incorrect, I think that Alex even pointed out very well that it is a much healthier way to consider the kingdom of heaven and to go about applying it to try to build it here on earth, to do what is called in many evangelical and traditional churches, kingdom work embodying the body of Christ to bring about the kingdom of heaven. So anyway, that's the idea, is that the kingdom of heaven is here, is now. And as Christ said, the kingdom of heaven is in your hearts. Now. Here. And we're going to go ahead and hear a little bit from some scholars who know a lot more than I do about what they have to say about the kingdom of heaven. There are people who will say, well, when we read the Bible, we see that there's a hope which is for going away from this world altogether and off to a wonderful place called heaven. And they claim often to find this in the Bible itself. Now, of course, the Bible does tell us about many dimensions to human life, to the life of this world, and warns us against thinking that the present world that we can touch and see and measure is all that there is. But the Bible doesn't say that in order to say we're going off somewhere else entirely. The Bible has a very different vision. Some of my favorite Psalms are the ones which talk about what God is promising to do one day. And it doesn't say God is going to throw this world into the trash can. It says rather things like this. All the trees in the forest will sing for joy before the Lord because he is coming to judge the earth 
Now, again, some people go wrong when they hear that word judge, and they think that that means God is going to get really angry with the world and is going to burn it up and fry it or throw it away. But for the Hebrews writing the Old Testament, the word judge was a good thing. Imagine somebody who has been badly wronged, who have had all their rights taken away from them, who've been bullied and oppressed and robbed, and they go to court and they say, I need justice, I need somebody to vindicate me. And eventually, if the judge is doing his job, the judge will say, I find in favor of this woman, her rights are upheld, she has her property restored to her. And that's what it's going to be like for the whole world. And the great story of the Bible from beginning to end is the story of God making a wonderful world, a world which then somehow, it's hard to tell how, really does go badly wrong but of God's promise to sort it all out one day. And then you can go across from those Old Testament passages to the very end of the New Testament, where the last scene in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, is not about people leaving earth and going upstairs to a place called heaven, but rather about the heavenly city coming down to be here on earth, so that heaven and earth are joined together. That is the great hope which is put before us right through the whole Bible. It's something which is there, if only we knew how to read them, in the Gospels themselves, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. Because Jesus, when he's teaching in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is not teaching us how to leave this world and go somewhere else. He taught us to pray, after all, thy kingdom come on earth as in heaven. And, you know, he went about doing it. And because many Christians assume that the name of the game is to go to heaven, they think that Jesus is talking about a kingdom, namely a place called heaven, where you might or might not go at the end of time or the end of your life. But Jesus himself makes it quite clear in some of the very same passages that that's not what's going on. Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. In other words, the kingdom of heaven is not a place called heaven where you go to escape from earth. The kingdom of heaven means the sovereign rule of heaven, which is coming to birth on earth. So that was a little clip from N.T. Wright, not sharing exactly the same mindset as me, but definitely closer to my perspective. And of course, you can't discuss the kingdom of heaven without discussing the rapture. I think a lot of Christians don't even realize how new of a concept this whole end times tribulation rapture thing is. And I cannot help but point to the Left Behind series. And so now we're going to hear from some scholars on what they have to say about the rapture. first thing to be said about a dispensational reading of the Bible is it didn't exist before about 1820 or so. And it really began in a little revival in Glasgow in Scotland. And there was a teenage girl named MacDonald, a good Scottish name, who claimed to have a vision of a pre-tribulation rapture of the church out of this world into heaven. Now, this event might have come and gone and not left much of a mark on the church itself, except that there was a certain reverend named Darby 
who heard this, became convinced that this theology was correct, began preaching this. Now again, this might have been a flash in the pan, a very small Christian sect with a peculiar belief that nobody in the first 1800 years of church history had believed in, except that Mr. Darby took his gospel of the rapture to the United States. And he came in contact with the Billy Graham of his day. His name was Dwight L. Moody. Moody became the sort of worldwide disseminator of this theology of dispensationalism and a pre-tribulation rapture for a very long time. And then we were off and running. What happened next is there began to be novels, not the Left Behind series, but earlier novels. One was called Jesus is Coming. Then even later than that, we have what is known as the Schofield Reference Bible. Not merely having a study Bible with chain references in the margin, but actually putting headings in the biblical text, like Jesus predicts the rapture, and then having study notes at the bottom of the page, so that the ordinary person who buys a Bible would go, well, look, it's right there in my Bible. The heading in the middle of Matthew 24 says Jesus predicts the rapture. It must be true, right? Somewhere in the mid-20s, this lay theological movement, and I would stress, this was a theological movement not based on the study of the Greek New Testament or the Hebrew Old Testament, but a lay theological movement that spread throughout the United States and in various places around the world. Somewhere in the mid-1920s, there was a felt need to shore up this theology with scholarly support and scholarly exegesis. And so you had the Dallas Theological Institute founded in the 1920s by a Presbyterian minister. This eventually became Dallas Theological Seminary. So you had two major centers of study of dispensationalism in America, one in Chicago and one in Dallas and both in the Midwest of the United States. Now, if you study the history of Dallas Theological Seminary and you look at the names of their presidents, you'll discover that most of those folks continued to propagate the gospel of dispensationalism by writing books like Armageddon and Mideast Oil by President Walvoord. And then, of course, the famous Timothy LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins series, the Left Behind series, which led to this most recent movie about a rapture and the Left Behind phenomena. What you need to understand about this is that for 1,800 years of church history, nobody believed this theology or thought it was an accurate way of interpreting the Bible. Today, when we look at it, we can realize it's a relatively modern phenomenon. It's unique to the Western church. It's unique to certain forms of Protestantism. In other words, it's not a Catholic theology. It's not an Orthodox theology. And actually, only a minority of Protestants have embraced this theology. So what we need to say about this is that if it's not well grounded in the exegesis of the Bible, it should not be embraced. And in fact, it isn't. There is no theology of the rapture in the New Testament. So what I like to say about all this is the left behind theology needs to be, wait for it, left behind.
So that was Ben Witherton giving his perspective on the left behind rapture theology, as I will call it. I really like the way that he expressed himself and addressed and clarified the historicity or maybe even lack of historicity and veritability behind that theology, behind that take on things. And it's kind of mind-blowing how much that has expanded and how widely accepted that is. Now let's hear very briefly from N.T. Wright with his take on rapture theology and maybe more specifically, as he puts it, life after, life after death. According to a British bishop, it's the one thing we leave till last. The question of heaven, the question of what happens after death, is one which a lot of people in our culture try to put off as long as they can, but sooner or later it suddenly swings around and looks them in the eye. Heaven is important, but it's not our final destination. If you want to say that when someone dies, they go to heaven, fine, but that's only a temporary holding pattern. That is life after death. And what I'm much more interested in, what the New Testament is much more interested in, is what I've called life after death life after death. This interpretation is the exact opposite of what many American Christians believe. They're not here. They're not anywhere. The hugely successful Left Behind series of movies and books is an apocalyptic vision of the end of the world, a view shared by many evangelicals. According to those who believe it, the end of the world will start with the so-called rapture, when all Christians will be taken up to heaven in one momentous swoop. The earth then enters a period of cataclysmic wars until it eventually disintegrates in a final chapter of fire. But Bishop Wright says that this is more mythical than biblical. The whole left behind myth is just that. It's a myth. It is an attempt to make sense of some bits of the New Testament. So you don't believe in the rapture either? No. Welcome to Inner Compass. I'm Karen Salpi. What do Christians believe about life after death? People get very muddled about this because in the Western world we have often imagined that resurrection is just a fancy way of saying going to heaven when you die. And so when people talk about our resurrection, they muddle that up with the idea of what happens immediately after death. In the first century Jewish world, and all the early Christians were, of course, first century Jews, resurrection had a very clear meaning. It meant that after you die, There is a period of being dead, and then God gives you a new or renewed body. And that, I think, we need to re-inhabit. When the early Christians said Jesus was raised from the dead, they didn't mean his body lies moldering in the grave and his soul goes marching on or something. They were talking about him being bodily alive after a period of being dead. Resurrection is not the same thing as simply dying and going somewhere else. It is actually the overcoming, the conquest of death. The idea, the loose idea of heaven and hell is actually a much older ancient pagan idea. The ancient Jews, the Israelites who wrote the Old Testament, were not particularly interested in what we call heaven and hell. But there were plenty of people in the Greek and the Roman world who were interested. And indeed, the fear of hell was one of the things that drove, for instance, the Epicurean poet Lucretius in the first century BC. I think what happened in the early and then high Middle Ages was Christians were kind of putting together what the Bible was saying with what the folk culture of the whole Western world sort of dimly believed. And sadly, it's the folk culture that's taken over many people in our culture think that that's Christianity. Jesus says, in my father's house are many 
and the King James Version says mansions mm -hmm. or rooms, whatever. But the Greek is monai, and a mone in Greek is not a place you go to live forever and ever. It is a wayside inn. It's a lovely wayside inn. It's a beautiful place. As I look at mentions of hell in the Bible, there aren't very many. Why have we fixated on those? I think we've done that because preachers have plugged into that deep reservoir of ancient, basically ancient pagan thought. And then they have taken the imagery from, say, the book of Revelation, and they've treated it as though this was a representation of something that was concretely the case. And of course, the book of Revelation is full of, you know, the whole thing right from the beginning is full of images, which are all signposts there. This is how music works. This is part of our trouble here, to be honest, is that since the Enlightenment, Western culture has been so left brain dominated, that we've forgotten about music, art, imagery, etc. But that's the stuff the right brain does, which is supposed to give us the larger framework within which the details make sense. We've gone for the details. Oh, well, it says there's going to be a lake of fire, right? There will be a lake of fire. You know, somebody once on a phone-in program said to me, do you believe there'll be worms in hell? In my Bible, it says it there'll says be worms so. in hell. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, uh, where do you even start? If we want to talk about the actual realities, we ought to talk about concrete and abstract. That things are either concrete in the sense of, of, of actually there and solid, or they're abstract, in which case they're ideas. The rapture theory simply is based on an over-literal reading of 1 Thessalonians 4, and actually only of a couple of verses in there, verse 17 following. And it's interesting because dispensationalism comes up particularly in the 19th century at precisely the time when, with post-Enlightenment rationalism, people have forgotten about how metaphor works. And so for all sorts of interesting sociocultural reasons, people say, ah, here we are. We'll be caught up in the clouds. Jesus will come down. We'll go up and meet him. And then we then go off somewhere. Mm -hmm. And when I wrote some years ago an article explaining that isn't what First Thessalonians is all about, and the, the magazine that printed it got lots of angry letters, including one which said, how does Mr. Wright think he'll get to heaven if he doesn't get raptured? And I thought, uh, excuse me, in this wonderful, sophisticated culture of yours, there are people who think that heaven is a few miles up in the sky and that the way to get there is for Jesus to snatch you up bodily. The great thing about heaven, which we've all missed, is that heaven is God's dimension of present reality and that heaven and earth are not millions of miles apart. That is Epicureanism. And that is endemic as well in modern culture. In the Bible, heaven and earth kind of intermingle. And their intermingling has a very particular focus in the ancient scriptures. It's the temple and then the Torah. And then in the New Testament, Jesus and the Spirit together do what temple and Torah did in ancient Israelite culture. They are the place where and the means by which heaven and earth get together. Goes together. Who goes to be with God? The images of judgment in the New Testament are very sharp and clear, and though the descriptions have to be taken as vivid metaphorical pictures, there is, I believe, a reality to which they correspond, which is that if somebody persistently says to God, I don't want you, I don't want to reflect your love in the world, I want to do my own thing, and I want to use death for my own purposes, etc., which is what classically tyrants do, it's what classically people who make a lot of money and don't care who they trample on in the way do. So if you go on saying no to God, what you are doing is basically dehumanizing yourself. You are saying, I didn't actually want to be human. We are a royal priesthood, or kings and priests, or kings and queens and priests, that the royal bit is our vocation to run God's world on his behalf in his way, 
the priestly bit is to sum up the praises of creation. And if a human being just throughout their life just goes on saying, no, I'm not going to do that, I don't want to do that, you know, they won't conceptualize it like that. But if that's what they do, God is not going to force them to be something that they are choosing not to be. So this isn't a traditional view of hell, but nor is it a conditionalism which says they just cease to exist. I think they cease to exist as humans. They become something we can only call an ex-human. I wonder why... American culture is so fixated on this. This is the most rich, well-off, powerful, elite culture the world has ever seen. Why is it that so many people in this culture really want there to be a hell? A picture which does come through. Throughout scripture, there's a sense the world is out of joint, but we believe in the creator God who will put it back into joint again. And that is a cause for enormous celebration. Judgment's a positive thing. Psalms 96 and 98, the trees of the field, the rivers and the floods will celebrate because Yahweh is coming to judge the world. Paul says quite clearly, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ so that we will each receive the things done in the body. And that's where Paul's view of salvation is very strong on the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit transforms those who are already justified by faith. Mm -hmm. Indeed, some Roman Catholic theologians now say that that's actually what purgatory is all about, that fiery moment when everything that we've done, which is not of God and not kingdom building, is just going to be burnt up. And they will say that's that's in a flash. This isn't sort of years and years that you can quantify or get time off for good behavior or whatever. It's very interesting, though, that that, that bit of 1 Corinthians 3 is really very important in that whole sequence. Let's be quite clear. We do not build the kingdom of God by our own efforts. We build for the kingdom. God will build the kingdom. But when he does that, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, get on with your work because what you do in the Lord is not in vain. It's not wasted. So that was N.T. Wright giving his take on things. Very progressive, I guess, compared to the modern church, and yet very orthodox in that it is very scripturally founded and only radical in a certain light when you really think about it. Um, but I, I'm i a big fan of some of the things that he says and some of his ideas. Other things I strongly disagree with him on, just for the record, especially his take on homosexuality and some things that he, I feel like he's just kind of stuck on and are not even in line with his own approach on reading the Bible and on taking the Bible in the cultural context. Of course, Many Christians point to Paul's letters about men shall not lie with man, woman shall not lie with woman sort of thing, without considering the context of the Roman rule under which the Jews were and what homosexuality was to them. There wasn't even the concept of sexuality at that time, not to mention any homosexual act was not associated with marriage or commitment I would also like to know, and and this also goes with the pragmatic take on things, that sin is something that hurts you. It is unhealthy for yourself, and that can manifest in multiple ways. It can hurt those around you and then hurt you. But it is going to always come back to hurting yourself. It's not about pleasing some third party, some god in the sky, some man, superhero, Santa Claus watching over us. It's not about satisfying or appeasing a man in the sky. 
in and of itself. Of course, it pleases God when we act in our own self-interest in the big picture, when we are being as healthy spiritually, physically, metaphysically as we can, when we are loving as much as we can, when we are living as close to an ideal existence as we can. Of course, that is pleasing to that man in the sky, to the universe, to God, to the force of love. But it is not in and of itself just a commandment that is willy-nilly made up. To me, it is very important to not have your sole reasoning be, the Bible says so. The Bible says so because, or this is the logic behind what was written in the Bible. These are more valid ways to approach any sort of mandate or any sort of warning against something that is labeled as sin. And I really like Paul Tillich's idea of sin as a state of being. According to Paul Tillich's theology, there really cannot exist such thing as sins, plural. Sin is a state of being. Likewise, I like the Lutheran doctrinal concept of salvation as a state of being not the traditional evangelical boom, you weren't saved, now you are. But more as, there's a phrase used in the Lutheran church, and I hope that I'm getting this right, but it is something along the lines of, I was saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. And I really, really like that concept. It is in some ways revolutionary. It in some ways pushes against Definitely against the Catholicism of the time when Martin Luther initially hung his theses from the door of the Catholic Church. And also, it confronts and challenges the assumed doctrines and definitions of sin presented and embraced by the Evangelical Church. Uh, I can at least say of the Southern Baptist Church, anyway. My experience with other denominations, of course, is limited, and I speak from where I speak from. I speak from my experiences. Uh, anyhow, so that's my kind of kind of my take on the kingdom of heaven. Whether or not I'm right or wrong, I think it is healthier for us to try to build the kingdom, to try to love and try to emulate Christ actively and proactively, giving of self, sacrificing of self, building the kingdom here on earth. And along the same lines... I would like to also bring up the second coming. So, in the first communion, in the Last Supper, Christ said, This is my body, eat of it. This is my blood, drink of it. We know, scientifically, whatever we eat becomes part of us. We eat of Christ, Christ becomes part of us. The more we do so, the more that thing becomes part of us. And we also know that we are the body of Christ. We also know, this one I don't get, but we also know that Christ said, you will do greater things than I have done. That's mind-blowing. I'm not even going to touch that one right now. But we know that we are the body of Christ. So is it possible that us stepping into and fully embracing that role and that mindset is the second coming? Is it possible that us being Christ to each other, not necessarily on an individualistic level, but as a collective body of believers, uh, well, there I go again, as a collective body 
of of lovers. How about that one? Collective body of lovers of Christ's with the lowercase c. Is it possible that us stepping into that role, into that collective machine, us stepping into that role as a gear in the machine or as a left hand in the body or as a pinky toe in the body, is it possible that once we have fully stepped into that, we have brought about the second coming of Christ? Second coming of Christ infers the second coming of the body of Christ. Christ the person coming. That's the story. That's the narrative. Pragmatically, is it possible that the second coming of this body is, and I believe this is supported by scripture. I do. I believe this is supported scripturally by Christ's own words. We are the body and us fully becoming the body. Maybe the second coming is a process. Maybe it's not an occurrence, a one-time historical event, a page in the story. Maybe it is a transition that has been going on for thousands of years, 2,000 years. Maybe the second coming of Christ is us becoming the body of Christ, which would then, of course, usher in the second time that the presence of such a loving and divinely connected individual or organism is present here on earth. The second coming of Christ, of God, as man. Is that possible? I, it's, a, it's a thought. It's an idea. It's something to entertain. Because I'm sorry, but to me, the idea of the clouds opening up, this great storybook ending of this you know, second coming of Christ, descending from outer space or whatever, or from some other metaphysical realm, some parallel universe, just doesn't resonate with me. That's It just doesn't. So maybe I'm grasping at straws. Maybe I'm trying to fit in a comfortable understanding. Maybe I'm approaching this wrong. Maybe I don't have enough faith. I am a doubting Thomas. I've said that multiple times. I am a skeptic. And maybe that's a temporary thing. Maybe it's not. If God does not want me to be a skeptic, God will change my heart. I believe that fully, and I am fully open to it, and I welcome it. I am not hard-hearted against that, but I believe what I believe, and I see things how I see things, and I can't help that. I got to be honest. I got to be honest with myself, and I got to be honest with you guys. It just doesn't make sense to me right here and right now. So is it possible that the second coming of Christ is us stepping into our role as the church, as the body of Christ? I think that that parallels and is synonymous maybe even with the coming of the kingdom of heaven. I think that radical theology does a really good job of addressing these ideas of a narrative or a story being taken too literally. I'm not pushing against the concept of using a narrative or using a story. The Bible is full of them. It's full of so many different genres. I like how Science Mike says it is a library, a book that is a library containing many books of different genres, of different perspectives, written by different authors in different times, in different places, in different cultures, from different worldviews, from different perspectives. And I really like how Radical Theology steps into and embraces that. And so I would like to play a clip from Peter Rollins. You know, I'm probably just going to play this whole thing just as it is because it's so short anyhow. 
but this is Peter Rollins. The closest parallel that I see to this in the modern Christian church is like communion and other rituals. It's pretty straightforward. I'm sure that you'll pick up on what he's saying. I'm sure I don't need to preface this too much. I'm sure that you are an intelligent person (laughs) capable of piecing this together. But this is a story or parable from Peter Rollins called The Temple Cat. There was once a Buddhist monk who would meditate every night in this temple high up in the mountains with his disciples. But there was a stray cat that lived in the temple and every time they would meditate the cat would run around and disturb everybody. So the Buddhist monk would take the cat and tie it to the tree every time they would meditate. This went on for years and finally the old man died. The disciples dutifully continued to tie the cat to the tree during meditation. Well, eventually, the cat died. And so the disciples got together, went down to the marketplace and bought a new cat that they could tie to the tree during meditation. After seven generations of cat went by, the tree eventually fell down in a storm. And so the disciples planted a new tree so that they could tie the seventh generation of cat to during meditation. And then finally, finally the scholars came along and they wrote learned treaties about the philosophical and spiritual significance of tying cats to trees during meditation. What a dreamboat. Anyhow, yeah, I think that that is just a great illustration of how rituals come to be. And rituals are, I think, very important. I think that they're very important in our tradition, in reminding us of very important things. But when the ritual becomes separated from the purpose, or when the initial purpose is forgotten, it just kind of becomes silly. It becomes a silly thing, a pointless thing, an empty thing. And maybe with communion, that happens with some people. Pointing to ultimate sacrifice and ultimate forgiveness is a wonderful thing to remember during the ritual of communion. And I'm just taking one example here, of course of a ritual. But is it possible that another thing that communion points to is us becoming the body of Christ and therefore becoming the second coming of Christ? Is that possible? Is that heresy? Is that blasphemy? I'm asking questions. I don't know. But that sits with me a lot better and it resonates with my logic a lot more than the idea of this grand re-entrance of a character from history. Now, I do not mean to belittle the significance of Christ and of the cosmic Christ. I have devoted my life to Christ, and when I go on about my skepticism and my speculations and things like that, that's just one side of the picture. That's one side of the coin. I feel like I need to remind you guys that the reason I moved to Minnesota was to follow in my Uncle Wally's footsteps and to follow in my Grandpa Dick Rose's footsteps. 
and to join up with Revolution Church. Honestly, those are the two main things. Following in the footsteps of my family, who was very, very effective in missions, maybe renewing, breathing new life, new perspective, and updating some of the messages behind their missions, and connecting with Jay Baker at Revolution Church. That's a really, really big one. (laughs) It's a really, really big one. Um, I love Jay. I love Revolution. I love the community. I think Jay is trying to breathe life back into a dying church, and I don't want to see the church die. I think it is, but I don't want it to. If there's any hope for it, I think it lies in Jay and people with the same heart as him. I think that he is the image of a pastor that is to be emulated and that is to be an example. Jay is so honest. Jay is so direct. And I will remind you, please listen to his podcast. Go to revolutionchurch.com and you can just listen to the podcast there. You can also listen to it on iTunes. You can donate there. Please do so, especially around the holiday season right now. He needs it. I'll also remind you, wrapping up the episode here, I'll remind you that you can listen to Air of Grievances on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash air-of-grievances. You can go to iTunes and search for Air of Grievances. You can go to airofgrievances.com. You can go to facebook.com slash airofgrievances to get involved in the community and to contribute some dialogue. Another great way to contribute some dialogue is through our voicemail. Hint, hint, hint. Don't be shy. Call and leave a message. Please do so. I I don't want to spoil anything for you guys, but I've received a lot of messages from one person. A person who is trying so hard to maintain an illusion, honestly, a visage of humility and expertise that uh, may or may not be there. We're going to get more into that in a later episode coming very soon. But um, yeah, I'd appreciate some more diverse feedback from you guys. The number for the voicemail is 612-460-0364. You can find that along with all the other links in the show notes. And of course, the links to the YouTube videos from which I pulled the audio clips that were used in today's episode. You can also go to patreon.com slash air of grievances if you'd like to support the show. Even if you have no interest in supporting the show, I would encourage you to go to patreon.com slash air of grievances because I have some kind of funny uh, like videos and stuff like that up on there that you might enjoy. So thanks again for listening, guys. I really appreciate all of you, whoever you are, wherever you are. I don't know, but I would know if you left me a voicemail. So do it. Love you.
Orchestration moving. Orchestration moving. 